You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Our guest today is Dr. Parikh Sharma, a cardiac electrophysiologist at Rush University who specializes in managing rhythm disorders of the heart. He is the section chief of cardiac electrophysiology, the director of the electrophysiology lab, and an associate professor of medicine at Rush Medical College. He is a world-renowned researcher and practitioner of his bundle pacing. He joins our show to talk about the latest advances with this procedure, how Rush is a leading provider of it, and how his bundle pacing provides a benefit to both patients and providers. Dr. Sharma, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to a very uh, enthusiastic discussion on this very interesting topic. Well, welcome. So to start, give us an overview of what conduction system pacing and his bundle pacing are and who these types of procedures could be appropriate for. So conduction system pacing is this is the blanket term we use for placing permanent pacing leads anywhere along the AV conduction system. His bundle pacing has more data in this space. And so that involves placement of a permanent pacing lead at the bundle of his, typically distal to the site of AV conduction disease, and thereby maintaining biventricular activation and synchrony, and how this might result into prevention of some adverse outcomes associated with traditional RV apical pacing. There's some evolving data on that, and we'll discuss that hopefully further in this talk. And a more newer location that is referred to as left bundle branch pacing, which is placement of a permanent pacing lead at the left bundle branch area in the interventricular septum. And each one of these are locations along the AV conduction system, allowing for placement of these permanent pacing leads, thereby maintaining interventricular synchrony. Coming to the second part of your question, which really was focused on which patients would benefit from this, I would broadly divide those patients into three categories. The first category of patients is those patients that have AV block and need pacing in the ventricle. So these would be cohort of patients that really otherwise have normal cardiac function and just have electrical disease that requires pacing in the ventricle. So that would be the first cohort of patients. And I would urge physicians to think of any patients that have need for ventricular pacing with a burden of more than 20%, because that's where most of the data exists. The second cohort of patients is those patients that already have dyssynchrony, either because of an underlying right or left bundle branch block, or those patients that have ventricular pacing and pacing-induced dyssynchrony and associated cardiomyopathy or heart failure is, again, a very unique cohort of patients that qualifies for cardiac resynchronization therapy. And his bundle pacing or left bundle branch pacing both might be reasonable alternatives to traditional biventricular pacing in this cohort of patients. So that is the second cohort or second group of patients I would urge physicians to think about when it comes to conduction system pacing. And finally, the third cohort is those patients that have underlying sinus node dysfunction and are elderly. 
because oftentimes patients that have sinus node dysfunction and are elderly also have either concomitant atrial fibrillation or have AV conduction disease at baseline that goes unrecognized. And we only find out in follow-up that they're also pacing their ventricle with a high burden, or they develop persistent atrial fibrillation requiring an AV nodal ablation and thereby end up pacing in the ventricle. So those are patients that were more proactive thinking about ahead of time. So that would be the three categories of patients I would lump the indications for conduction system pacing or his bundle pacing into. Okay. So conversely, are there patients who um, his bundle pacing wouldn't be appropriate for? Yeah, there's a small subset of patients that we still don't have a lot of data on, and we're a little bit mindful considering those patients for conduction system pacing. These are not absolute contraindications, but relatively we'd have to think about being careful in these patients as patients that have underlying progressive conduction system disease or septal involvement with scarring. For example, patients with underlying cardiac sarcoidosis might be a typical example of a patient cohort that can develop progressive septal involvement with time and their conduction system disease could progress quickly. And we don't know how the, how these how implantation of leads in patients with this sort of a disease process would respond or evolve with time. And another cohort of patients that have an underlying tricuspid prosthetic valve, because that runs very close to the his bundle, we try to avoid placement of permanent pacing leads very close to prosthetic uh, valves, uh, particularly in the tricuspid valve area. So those would be two subsets of patients I would be a little bit careful about. Not that it's an absolute contraindication, but we still need more data before we proceed cautiously. So conduction system pacing um, has been around since about 2000, but initially didn't have very good results. Could you talk about what prompted the renewed interest in this procedure and how those challenges, say the delivery systems, were overcome? Yeah, that's interesting. So the initial study on his bundle pacing was first uh, published by Dr. Deshmukh in the year 2000 in circulation. Uh, following that, I think there was a huge hiatus for about a decade. And I think the biggest reason for that, in my opinion, were twofold. One, the initial results for success rates in the early studies published by Dr. Deshmukh were only about 65 to 70% at best. And if you want something to become commonplace in terms of an implant procedure in the hands of implanting physicians with good outcomes for patients, you need better success rates. The second challenge really was that there were multiple additional steps involving placement of a temporary pacing catheter from the groin to find and localize where the his bundle was and just fluoroscopically find those areas on an RAO LAO projection of the heart. And that's not really elegant and is a very crude method to try and find where these areas are located. What has changed is we have more dedicated systems for delivery of these leads at this at the his bundle or left bundle branch region. And we are able to record electrograms from the tip of these leads at the bundle of his, telling us that you're on the bundle of his before we finally fix these leads at that location. So it's a much more elegant procedure. It's more physiological. We can identify where disease is located before we accept a site for placement of these leads. And so it is more 
physiological or more scientific in the way it's performed today than it was first described back in the early 2000s. And that's the reason why there's been a huge evolution. And success rates for these implants have now been reported from 2010 when we published some of our early work at about 80% to more recently up to about 94, 95% in recent literature. And so there's been a huge evolution in the delivery systems and the success rates as a result. And that's probably why there's been this renewed interest in this form of pacing. So speaking of success results, can you also address the outcomes between his bundle pacing versus the more traditional right ventricular pacing? I think there's enough data that has um, that has occurred over the course of the past couple of decades, starting in the early 2000s, that demonstrated very clearly that right ventricular apical pacing or the conventional location for right ventricular lead placement, as well as RV septal pacing, could be associated with adverse clinical outcomes. And these include uh, pacing-induced cardiomyopathy, heart failure hospitalizations, atrial fibrillation, and associated mortality. Well, with his bundle pacing, on the contrary, we've been able to demonstrate with large-scale studies, although it's important to recognize these studies are not randomized controlled trials, but large-scale multi-center studies have demonstrated that his bundle pacing essentially can prevent a lot of these adverse clinical outcomes. And some of the early work done by myself with one of my old mentors, Dr. Vijayaraman, we demonstrated that we can decrease heart failure hospitalizations in patients with his bundle pacing uh, compared to right ventricular pacing. More recently, in a study that we published in the Journal of American Heart Association, we actually demonstrated that his bundle pacing also decreases the development of atrial fibrillation amongst patients that are paced in the ventricle when compared to right ventricular pacing. And a large-scale study performed by Dr. Vijayaraman and published in 2018 in Journal of American College of Cardiology demonstrated that his bundle pacing does much better than right ventricular pacing when looking at hard endpoints such as heart failure hospitalization, mortality, and the need for upgrade to biventricular CRT. So there is a lot of data suggesting that his bundle pacing might be a better method or site for pacing in the ventricles compared to traditional RV pacing. Okay, so can you also talk about the value of his bundle pacing for cardiac resynchronization? So I know that's one of the benefits as well, right? Correct. That's essentially the second category that we discussed in the beginning of this podcast, where the first category was patients that have traditional indications for pacing alone with otherwise intact and stable cardiac function. The second category is those patients that have a depressed ejection fraction or heart failure or depressed left ventricular systolic function and have the need for cardiac resynchronization. And this can be further subcategorized into a bunch of vindications. So patients with heart failure and left bundle branch block, patients with heart failure and right bundle branch block, patients with pacing-induced cardiomyopathy and need for resynchronization, and patients with a depressed ejection fraction and undergoing AV nodal ablation, which means their inherent need for ventricular pacing is going to be high. And we studied this in multiple studies, and multiple studies have been published, and there are a couple of small randomized control pilot studies that have also demonstrated that when hispanal pacing is performed for cardiac resynchronization, 
the success rate for achieving resynchronization is somewhere between 80 to 90%, depending on the series that you review and the, the implanting physician and his experience. And the long-term outcomes are consistently better with his pacing when compared to the traditional biventricular pacing with a higher improvement in ejection fractions, a higher response rate to resynchronization with his pacing compared to biventricular pacing, and a significant improvement in the NYHA functional class. The longer-term outcomes when it comes to evaluation of mortality and heart failure hospitalizations requires a more head-to-head randomized control trial between his bundle pacing versus biventricular pacing in a much larger cohort of patients with a longer follow-up. And some of those studies are in the process of starting to uh, enroll at various sites. And that will take another three to five years before we have the results of such large-scale randomized control trials before we can have a conclusive answer to which one of these strategies, either his panel pacing slash conduction system pacing or biventricular pacing pans out to be better for cardiac resynchronization. Is Rush um, participating in one of those clinical trials? Yes, we are participating and leading some of the trials uh, associated with his panel pacing. We have about 15 ongoing trials at Rush of which about eight or nine are, of them are on conduction system pacing. And we're about to participate in the largest randomized control trial that is uh, going through some final phases of funding and hopefully should be approved really quickly. So I'm really curious, how did Rush become an early adopter and now leading provider of this procedure? Yeah, I think I certainly did have something to do with with conduction system pacing becoming popular at Rush, but no success is a one-man show. We are a team and everything we've done, we've done together. And uh, this is from the physicians to the trainees to our nurses and nursing staff that have all contributed equally to the growth of this program. And so I was fortunate enough to learn this technique from Dr. Vijay Raman, who's one of my mentors back in 2010, when we did some of the early work on his bundle pacing and uh, continued to, you know, enhance my skill set on this. And when I came to Rush, we started doing a lot of these cases and we've grown in our experience with it. We've done close to 500 cases in the past little over four years with uh about a 97 to 98% success rate, irrespective of the patient cohort that we look at, about 50% of our patients are patients that have an indication for cardiac resynchronization therapy when it comes to some of these procedures. And I think at the end of the day, uh, like I said, it's a team's effort because it's not just important to get a good result when we talk about doing these procedures, but it is very important that these patients are followed very carefully and closely so we continue to adjust the parameters on these devices and continue to provide the patients the benefit of this form of pacing therapy. And that requires a lot of education on the support staff, particularly the nurses that are part of our device clinic, and that's an involved process. That's why this is not a one-man effort and kudos to the entire team here at Rush to get us to that point where we're considered a leader in this field. Kind of to piggyback off of that, it seems that there's a bit of a learning curve to become skilled at his bundle placement. Does that mean that not all providers are able to do it? So I'm thinking 
It could be that only uh, you'd have to go to an academic medical center like Rush to get this procedure or another kind of specialized hospital. Can you touch on that aspect of, I guess, the comfortability for patients to get this procedure done? Right. I mean, I think when you start thinking again, you have to, I try to bin things into different buckets. So uh, it becomes simpler. So when you look at the standard traditional pacing indicated population, once most implanting physicians have gained experience with this procedure, which again is not small in the number of cases that are required, it takes somewhere between 30 to 50 cases to become proficient to be able to do these procedures successfully and consistently with all the right steps involved. And, and that takes a little bit of a learning curve. And that's what the current data suggests, that it can take somewhere between 30 to 50 procedures to be able to become proficient and get a better success rate. Just talking about just highlighting our own experience back in 2010 when we published some of our first data with the implants done in 2010, our success rate was only about 80%. When we looked at the same cohort of implants done from 2013 to 2016, our success rate was about 92%. And now more recently, our success rate is about 97, 98% when we look at conduction system pacing. So Clearly, with time and with doing more cases and with perseverance and patience, you can improve your success rate for doing these procedures. And as time has evolved, there's also been an, a little bit of an evolution in the delivery tools that we use for some of these cases, which has helped with improving the success rate. So when it comes to that standard pacing population, I think that most physicians should try to do this, but do it carefully, safely, with all the right steps and training. And once they've gone through their initial experience, I think they should be able to do this in most practices, whether it be uh, an academic medical center or a hospital-based setting or a community hospital, as long as they are dedicated and have been through that initial experience or learning curve. I think the challenge is when it comes to the more complex cases, and those become those patients with the cardiac resynchronization with significantly depressed left ventricular ejection fractions and dilated ventricles, and the current tools may not be able to always get you there. And that's where having centers that have this high level of experience with having done hundreds of cases, particularly with a high number of cases with this particular subset of patients, that's where your success rate can really uh, vary significantly between someone who's a community practitioner and does a handful of these cases versus someone that does hundreds of them. And so I think that if you are in a practice where you don't have a lot of experience with this or some of your colleagues that do these implants don't have a lot of experience with it, then maybe for some of those complex cases, it might be worthwhile referring them and maybe having your colleagues come to see those cases so they can learn as time goes on and get proficient with them. And we're open to that. We have a proctorship program where we actually educate and train physicians across the country and across the globe have flown from all over the world, from India, China, multiple places to rush to actually train on how to do these procedures. And so that's something that we would be open to. And so that's how you spread this. We need more providers that can do these proficiently. But for those more complex cases, I think it's worthwhile referring them to high volume centers with a lot of experience. So you mentioned Rush being a proctorship site. So what does Rush have to do to be considered 
kind of a teaching hospital in this way? Like, what are some of the curricular means in which you teach his bundle pacing to providers? I think, um, you know, proctorship sites are sites that have been recognized by a lot of physicians that these are centers of excellence, essentially, that have done hundreds of implants, but are also great teachers of this technique and have simultaneously published a lot in this field. So they are well aware of the, the benefits, they're well aware of the downsides, the challenges, and what it might take for physicians and what their initial challenges might be. They've been through those experiences and can educate them and are willing to educate, more importantly, the rest of the community to be able to do these implants successfully. And so I think with our level of experience with our nursing team, we actually have, when we do our proctorship programs, we typically have about five to seven physicians come and see live cases. We get our patients to give us permission for them to be present there. They see five to, um, we have five to seven physicians. We do about three to five cases during the day, depending on the complexity. And they are constantly asking us questions. We go through a full didactic with them the morning off. And again, during the lunch hour, which involves how to follow up these devices, which is there's participation from our nursing staff in these sort of events so that they can educate not just the providers, but either the reps or their own nursing staffs when they go back on what's important to look for and what do you pay attention to so that they can build their program essentially. So it's a very involved one to two day training program with physicians that come from all over. We have a survey that we send out to sort of get feedback on how we're doing. And we've received nothing but excellent remarks. Uh, and I'm very proud to say that we've actually been able to put a very successful program that physicians, we've had physicians that have come back repeatedly, a few of them just to sort of, you know, ask even more advanced questions and learn and take that back to their center. So I think that's what sets us apart and that's what makes us a center for excellence and a proctorship site for some of these procedures. I wanted to follow up on something you talked about just a little bit ago with the improved success rates at Rush. So you said it was around 80% when you first started, then you're up to, you said around 95% now success rates. You mentioned some of those, the, the catalysts for those things were education, obviously, time, you know, proficiency in doing the procedure, and then the delivery tools. Can you go in and maybe provide a little bit more detail or context about some of the, maybe the delivery tools or anything else that was a factor in Rush improving those success rates? When I said the 80% success rate, that was still in some of our early publications. I was not at Rush at that time. So that was when we first started doing his bundle pacing within the United States. The 80% success rate was from those initial experiences. And then 2013 to 2016, the success rate was 92%. When I started at Rush, the first couple of years, our success rate was about 95, 96% just because I had been doing those implants for all those years before I got here. And then over the past few years, we've been able to get it closer to 98% just because we've learned so much. And so I think what we've learned is a few things. I think it's important to be patient during these procedures. Some, pa some procedures can take lesser time than a regular pacemaker implantation, and some there can be a lot of challenges with. But we've we've sort of advanced in the toolkit that we have in terms of the delivery sheets that we use to deliver these leads at these locations. Sometimes we've actually done, you know, um, sheath and sheath sort of different sort of uh, 
tools that are not standard or not necessarily built for this. We've had to sort of come up with innovative ways of being able to get leads to those locations. And then we've actually published those techniques so that others can take advantage of those techniques and be able to improve their success rates over time as well. So there's been a lot of those advancements with time and that has led to an improved success rate over time. And we've also learned what are the good things to do, what are the bad things to do, and what are bad habits that we need to sort of move away from if we want to have better success rates in an efficient, timely fashion during the procedure. So that's what's led to an enhanced and improved success rate with time. Looking forward, what do you see are the advances coming in the field for conduction system pacing? Over the past two or three years, we've learned that there is another site along the conduction system called the left bundle branch area that we can place these leads at. So those patients that may have disease that is even more distal to the his bundle, they could benefit from that form of therapy. And so we may barely have any failures when it comes to implant success for conduction system pacing. And so that's been a huge advancement to our field. We're still learning how to you know, tweak some of those uh, as time goes on and how do we get more success out of both of these modalities of conduction system pacing. So that's a new development in the field. But I think the two areas that we really need more advancements in number one is we need dedicated devices that are built for conduction system pacing with dedicated leads and delivery tools and they will continue to evolve with time you know i think most physicians that are implanters or not are aware that biventricular pacing was introduced in the early 2000s and today we can say that we can successfully perform biventricular pacing in 95 to 97 percent of cases and with that sort of advancement, if we look at it a decade down the road, I'm sure we'll be able to achieve that form of success in most implanting hands if things are done appropriately. So that's something that we need advancements with. We also need more randomized control data with multiple centers and multiple operators so that we can show that this form of pacing is safe feasible and does lead to good outcomes, no matter who the implanting physician is, as long as if they've had that early implant experience and been through that learning curve. So that is another area that we need more data on before we can say this is the way of the future. Well, I've really enjoyed learning more about this. It sounds like an amazing procedure that can help a lot of people out. So thank you so much for your time and telling us all about it. Thank you very much, Dan. Hopefully we will be able to continue to learn more about this and hopefully the audience got to learn something new that can help the field in decreasing the number of leads and the number and the size and price of devices because sometimes we will be able to achieve resynchronization with a regular dual chamber pacemaker when you when traditionally they would have required a biventricular pacemaker with three leads and a bigger device that's more expensive. So hopefully in the future, we will see these devices that can help decrease healthcare expense and result in better outcomes for our patients. So thank you all for listening in and I appreciate the time. Thanks, Dr. Sharma.